0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with A.B. Endicott. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Two SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land, and treaty was never made in Australia. A.B. Endicott is a fantasy novelist whose titles include The Legend of the God-Kissed Continent series, including The Queendom of the Seven Lakes duology, and most recently, Deliverance of the Blessed. She's joining me today to discuss her essay and mini-book reflecting on storytelling. It's called Mirror Mirror. Mirror Mirror is the first title from a new independent publisher, Debu Books. Debu Books is based in Melbourne and is the brainchild of Catherine Larson. The publisher aims to provide a platform for great storytelling and especially to support emerging Australian voices. The mini-books collection starts off with Mirror Mirror and it is... You know, it is a great privilege to have a chance to support them and what they want to do for Australian storytelling. Now, Mirror Mirror explores our propensity as storytellers. Every day our world is filled with stories, stories we consume and especially those that we tell. These stories help us shape our world, but how do we influence those stories and how in turn do those stories reflect our culture? Join me as we discover A.B. Endicott's Mirror Mirror. (laughs)
1: Hello,
0: this is Alice speaking. Hey, Alice, it's Andrew calling from 2SER. How are you?
1: I'm not too bad, thanks, Andrew. How are you?
0: I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. We're not on Zoom right now because uh, one of my one of my cats has decided to join me, and <gasps> she just no, not really. She just she just butted her fuzzy little butt into the microphone. I
1: <laughs> one, one second, sorry.
0: I don't need to look at that right now. Thank you. Tail down. Um, oh,
1: see, I, I I'm such a cat person, so I would have just. Like doesn't matter. Doesn't matter which end of the cat. I'm very
0: happy. She's doing laps. She's just she's just walked all the way around the computer and she's back. You you're talking about how that idea of the happily ever after doesn't mm. satisfy us anymore. I was chatting the other day with JP Pamari, so we were chatting away because he also had a book come out in sort of December January, and mm. I commented to him on all of the the sort of the thriller mystery type of like psychological thriller type books that had been coming across my, my desk for final draft. And I was likening it back to the period um, in the interwar period that is kind of known as the golden age of crime writing and Agatha Christie and Nio Marsh and uh, Dorothy L. Sayers. And a lot of the scholarship around that sort of basically points to those um, variously known cosy mysteries as being... They, they encapsulated the danger... In a safe way, and in that interwar period, people mm. wanted they wanted to understand danger, but they wanted it to be safe. They wanted their narrative to basically wrap it up and yeah. and give it to them in a in a wholesome, um, digestible way. And and maybe maybe that's sort of part of that phenomenon that you're looking at. People are looking to to digest the the difficult in a in a more palatable way.
1: Well, I think more than that. Like, I think our stories. Um, you know, we're, we also, we're looking for stories to kind of acknowledge now, and I think in an interconnected world, we're acknowledging that like, sometimes things aren't wrapped up in a neat bone, so mm. we look to our stories to help us understand that, um, and it's really funny because I had a fiction book come out at the beginning of this month. When I started the editing process of it last year, the central, like I realised that it's, you know, central idea is actually grief, and how do you deal with grief, mm. and Thing, your, your world basically you know, collapsing in on you and when i came back from my you know my really big heavy edit um in the middle of the year my grandfather had just died and so it took on this really personal aspect to me but everyone who's reading deliverance of the blessed now they're like wow you know the grief it's really it's really resonating with me and i was talking to a friend and he said well that's what everyone's looking for at the moment people are looking for how do you process grief how do you how do you work through when your world, you know, the world as you know it or as we know it falls apart and you have to kind of reconceptualize re- the new normal?
0: Why don't we jump into the interview proper Thanks. and I'll hit you up with some some questions that aren't just random thoughts galloping through my brain? Oh,
1: I mean, I love a random thought. That's how, that's how all of my life works. I just string my thoughts together and it looks and I kind of sum it up neatly at the end and it sounds like I had a plan.
0: I'm just. I'm just also going to mention that this is Mirror Mirror is published as you know part of Daboo, which is a new publish an independent yeah. publisher just to let kind of people know that it's out there. So, Alice is the author of Legends of the God-Kissed Continent series, which includes the Queendom of the Seven Lakes duology, most recently Deliverance of the Blessed, but Mirror Mirror is a different beast. It is an exploration of storytelling, something that we love here, why we do it, how it helps make us who we are. Alice, you're you're a lover of storytelling as well as a storyteller yourself, so let's start simple, or at least... Something that kind of sounds simple on the surface. What's a story?
1: Well, you've actually hit me with the biggest before you could to start. Aren't I terrible? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the classical definition of a story is something that has a beginning, middle and end, which I think is probably the least helpful definition you could possibly provide anyone. Realistically, a story is, something that is self-contained that contains information in which something happens or something changes or something you know something goes from one place to another or someone changes or something changes and yeah at the end the character has either or the the person has either returned to their original starting point or changed but I think a story is anything and what Mirror Mirror examines is that we actually or one of the things Mirror Mirror examines is that we use stories as a mechanism by which we tell every single piece of information that we convey in our daily lives. So what I've just done is tell you a very rambling story, to be honest, about what stories are. Um, What we most commonly think stories are, are of course things that are bounded within books or movies or television shows, and they're bounded by the conventions of storytelling. But realistically, we actually are all storytellers because that's how we convey information about everything that we do and the world that surrounds us.
0: I don't know about you. I'm I am very attracted to things that seem obvious and simple, but when you start to delve down, make you go, "Hang on a minute!" And a story is—it's really that sort of that sort of a beast that you um, you end up saying, "Well, I know it when I see it." But those definitions are so very difficult. And I think one of the beautiful things that Mirror Mirror helps unveil is that, yes, we are all storytellers. And it's it's not so much what a story is, but the impact that it has and the power that it has that is so very important. And so now that we have some idea of the, what this story business is, we can start to think about that fundamental aspect you write about in Mirror Mirror, that we are all storytellers. And I mean, look, I, a lot of us like to spin a yarn, you know, especially when we're relaxing with friends. But storytelling often seems to have this privilege status. You know, it's something that writers do, that movie makers do. Can you talk to me a little bit more about us individuals as storytellers?
1: Yeah, I can. Um, and I think what what's really interesting is that, and it's sort of what I said before, that there's conventions of narrative that bound certain pieces of storytelling when it's elevated into more formal status or more formal forms. So I was speaking with Wei Chim the author of the surprising power of a good dumpling who which is a fabulous book by the way and she is just a fabulous person. And we we did an event to debut books in October. And as authors what we were talking about is the fact that story when you're writing is actually quite stylized you don't bring in the fact that people say arm and er and when you know in an everyday conversation you've got sentence fragments you have like or arm or you know it, it doesn't actually it's not beautiful if you were to transcribe everything that happened in a day as part of the story you'd have this unending piece of just it just wouldn't end, really.
0: And nobody ever goes to the bathroom in stories unless something's no. happening in that bathroom.
1: No, and I mean, like, fair enough. Because do you want to read that? It's not relevant to the plot. Mm. Um, and more than that, when you're resolving the elements of the plot, you want to you know. It comes. You know, isn't it amazing how everything at the end of a book is not necessarily neatly tied up, but there's resolution to everything. Mm. And interestingly, when it's not resolved people and readers and viewers and consumers really don't like it. Um, so we've got that very formalized convention of storytelling and convention of genre and genre expectations, which um, Neil Gaiman in his Masterclass uh, series was talking, you know, he says genre actually, you know, there's quite a lot of expectations as to what's going to happen in a particular genre at various points in the story. Um so, you know there's expectations that guide how the story unfolds and what happens in it. And that's I think more much more formalized when you're looking at novels or shows or TV or plays or even musicals. In an everyday setting, I think we do actually parallel that and we do mimic that because if someone's going on to too many tangents, going into too many tangents, I should say, or they're you know, really taking a long time to get to the point or just giving, you know, the minutiae that's not necessary, people stop listening and people don't engage. So we do it unconsciously, I would say, in just our everyday lives because that, you know, otherwise people aren't, people's responses condition how we frame the information and how we package the information that we give. But what's really interesting to me is that And what we don't necessarily examine is how we frame even just the pieces of information that we relay. So um, I think gossip's a really great example. Gossip is just a story. It's just a shorter story, um, generally with a smaller cast and with particular framing and, uh, like, I want to say keywords or buzzwords, but I would even just say charged words that direct us to interpret what's happening in a particular way.
0: Now, I'm not much of a reader myself. That's not really my thing. I could never pull that off. I'm more of a sporty person. There's there's four little mini stories that you'll hear day by day. None of them really apply yep. to me. I'm, I feel like I need to clarify that. It's people that have been <laughs> listening to this show for seven years going, wait, he's not much of a reader? <laughs> they are they are those kind of little mini stories that we tell every day as as storytellers we're all storytellers mm. how does that sort of storytelling help make us who we are
1: That's a really great question Andrew and I'm really glad you asked it and also just as an aside thank you for kind of taking my Very long-winded explanations and answers and directing them very nicely towards the next point. Um,
0: Sometimes you want a Lord of the Rings and other times you'll settle for a Hobbit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I'm very wordy, uh, which is not very surprising, but I wish I could just be a bit more concise sometimes. Um, But you wouldn't tell. Mirror Mirror is quite short and all of my fiction is actually quite to the bone. When I write, I'm quite to the point and then I have to add stuff in. But when I'm providing a verbal piece of information or a verbal response, I try to frame and give context so that you understand exactly what I'm trying to say, because I'm trying to give you all of the context and knowledge in my head. It's not an efficient way to communicate anything, really.
0: Um, Interestingly, though, you, you just told two very contradictory stories about yourself. And I don't doubt for I a know. second that you could probably write a very, very long winding novel if you chose to. And and probably there are times when you could be very pithy and to the point in a conversation. Why, why is it important though that you told those stories about uh, yourself and and we tell stories about ourselves to help realise those those sort of personalities?
1: So to answer why do I give that much information, why do I tell that? Because to me, it's really important. And the message that I try to give in every part of my life is you need to understand the context. You need to. Okay. There's more information than I'm necessarily giving you. And so I'm trying to provide as much of a groundwork so that you as an independent thinker, hopefully, can draw conclusions or see where I might be missing things out. I try to be as balanced as possible and acknowledge where I could be missing things as much as possible. Uh, and it's a fascinating way to live in my head. When... We normally, and partly it's because when we normally tell stories about who we are, we are reinforcing ideas rather than challenging. We are actually, and this is this is what all identity is. So my background is uh, I'm, a, I'm an anthropologist by training. That was what my undergraduate is. And realistically moving into further research, the space that I would occupy is literary anthropologist or narratologist. Um. So anthropology is the study of people. It is the study of culture. It's the study of identity. And how do communities not only create their identity, but reinforce that group identity? Mm. So you reinforce it in part by understanding what you are not, but you also reinforce it by articulating what you are or what you are not. So saying, I'm not a reader or I'm really sporty you are affirming that that is true. So, it's one of those things that because you say it, it becomes true and you do it and therefore you say it and it becomes true and you do it. It's that cycle.
0: Mm. We're getting into some really interesting territory and I I need you to keep drawing me a little bit of a map here because if we're all telling stories every day and if these stories are helping us be ourselves, are the stories shaping us or do we shape the stories to fit? I mean, is a story... Is a story a mould that we're pouring ourselves into, or is it a mask that we're wearing and that we we get to design, or is it both?
1: I think I think it's both, um, and I think the point of differentiation is how aware you are about it and how conscious you are in like catching yourself, and that's I think what the, to me the point of mirror mirror is to get people to think about the stories that they're telling or the stories that they're not telling. Um, and I was listening to the oh, it was like the little discussion piece that you released and I think it was November of last year, Andrew about the stories that we tell and how they you know challenge our expectations or how they challenge us um, and what stories do we, we include and what stories do we not include and how do we talk about the inclusion and exclusion of certain narratives? So I thought it was great. By the way, I thought I really enjoyed listening today. It was it was really interesting and really concisely explored.
0: Um Well, thank you for mentioning the Listening Post magazine that you can get a copy of if you if you become a supporter of 2SER. It's like we planned that. Thank you so much, Alice.
1: Oh, okay. just setting it up so you can knock it down. Um, but no, I thought I thought that was a really excellent and succinct, in a beautiful kind of thematic continuation that we're talking about it today. And I think we are more aware of, or, or we are trying to be more aware of the fact that we do emit certain stories and voices and framings. I, I guess the step is well, what do we do about that? We know that there are gaps, we know that there's a problem. And I think the first step is just being aware because when you are aware and when you are critical and when you are reflective, I mean, it's exhausting. fair enough, sometimes you do just want to go back and reread Harry Potter. And you don't want to necessarily think about the fact that J.K. Rowling has voiced stances that are problematic or even sometimes that the internal logic and the internal morality in the world of Harry Potter is problematic. Sometimes it's just a comfort read. And fair enough, you know, sometimes if you are on all the time, you will burn yourself out and you're not going to achieve anything. But Having that in the back of your mind and saying, you know what, I'm going to put that aside for the time being, is it to me a great step in the right direction?
0: It's so interesting you bring up Harry Potter because, I mean, in Harry Potter we have this very familiar story shape of the underdog who undertakes. I'm going to use. I'm going to use the narrative label here that undertakes a hero's quest uh, and and overcomes. <laughs> um, a very similar character who was an underdog who took on a, a kind of a power quest and was corrupted by it, which starts to sound a whole lot like an underdog writer who undertook a hero's quest, wrote a whole bunch of books, and then got corrupted by it and started mouthing <laughs> off with hateful views.
1: And these... what's really funny is one of the key themes in that book is how our choices, mm. you know, that, and that's the whole point the choices that you make uh, at every stage, you have the choice. So, yes. Yeah.
0: And these, these stories, I mean, the fact that we can talk about three separate stories there. We've got the Harry story, we've got the Tom Riddle story, and we've got um, the author's story. And it, they all sort of have this shape that we recognize, shapes story shapes that have been around for centuries. And you do this really fascinating work in Mirror Mirror, exploring the evolving shape of stories and the way that storytellers reflect our contemporary culture through those tellings. Now this is the this is the meat of Mirror Mirror and I don't want I, I do want people to discover it. I don't want to give it all away. Can you talk though a little bit about that contemporary reworking and the way stories reflect culture? Yes.
1: Yeah. There we go. Succinct. Um I'm gonna start from an author's perspective. I'm gonna give you the author's perspective, which is the first person that I write any story for any piece of fiction that I write, the first person I write it for is me. Mm. What I then do, and I'm, it's becoming more and more as, you know, I catch myself earlier and earlier in the process. What I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to work out the world. Mm. And, you know, my my latest fiction book, Deliverance of the Blessed. one of its core themes is grief. And I mean, grief has always been, grief and losing someone, I, I think it's a universal thing, that it's something we are afraid of. It's something we grapple with. It's always been something that I've been interested in. And it took on a really personal note to me because when I did my most significant edit um, in which I printed out, I do it by hand. I hate myself. I hate the English language. I hate the book. I hate my partner. You know, it's just really a, a great experience in breaking yourself down and then hopefully building yourself back up but when I was in that stage it was immediately after my grandfather died last year and I was very close to him I come from a very small very close family so working through the character's grief and reframing and reshaping the words with which I expressed it took on a very personal you know, it was a very personal experience. I was really directly drawing on what was going on by pure coincidence. I was trying to work through my own grief. I was trying to understand it through the lens of another character to give myself, and and I mean, the process was I gave myself the distance because I gave it to another character, and I looked at it from a more reflective perspective, and I, I, I really worked through it. It so happens that that story is public not public domain but it's out in the world Mm. and people have that that book has actually resonated with a lot of people that and here's you know it's i'm telling you a story about the story that i wrote Mm. first and foremost it's me trying to understand a facet of the world and then giving it to the world so i think when that's what all writers do they look at the, or something about the world and they work, they see something about the world and they work through it in the text that they produce. And then it gets thrown back to an audience. So I think my, the way I'd also consider it is, and it's something my English teacher told me when I was in year 11 and we were doing poetry. And she said the a poem is 50% what the author intended and 50% what the reader takes away from it. But that 50% of what the author intended, and this is my editorialization on top of it, is what the author sees in the world and what they're trying to figure out in the world around them.
0: I want to move into that space that you just mentioned there. We have talked very much about the storyteller and that act of storytelling and the fact that we are all storytellers. But I also I saw in your title, Mirror Mirror, both the conceit of a story reflecting a society But I also heard that infamous line that I since learnt this morning, I think we're all misquoting in our heads, from the so-called evil queen from Snow White. And in that scene, the queen is asking for affirmation. She needs someone to tell her a story to affirm her place and her power. And in that way, being a consumer of stories is incredibly important. I wondered what your thoughts are Particularly, I guess, in, this, in 2021, in this strange post-truth world uh, that we, you know, we're told we live in, I wonder what your thoughts are on that need for stories to affirm and to prop up our own need for power and control, even if it's just you know, very small and personal, hearing stories that, that make us visible.
1: Well, see, I hear that question on two levels because, one, it's about power structures that tell stories, select stories, and push certain stories. Mm. And then there's a the level of the story when you just want to know that you're going to be able to get through it. Mm. So I'll start with the second. And I think definitely, you know, so – and I didn't put this in the book because I, I don't think I was particularly desperate to go down the research rabbit hole, um, you know, a win for laziness. Apparently, when you meet a character in a book, the process in your brain is no different to when you meet a person in in life. So, when we see sort characters, when we meet them, it becomes anecdotal in a way that we process it. So, knowing that, um, you know, Samwise was it was or photo picked Samwise to help him carry the ring, and it's about the power of friendship and the power of You know, sometimes you might be consumed by something and that's when, well, you either need a friend to carry you the rest of the way or Smeagol to bite your finger off. I'm not quite sure exactly what point I was making there. But, you know, you take the lesson away from it as a piece of anecdotal evidence or even a piece of, you know, proto-gossip, you could say. Um, And I think when... Sometimes we do just need to know that it's going to be okay, that, you know... Eve Dallas, who is the protagonist from J.D. Robb's In Death series, gets the bad guy and generally does so in a stylishly arctic fashion. And then she goes home to Rock and finds happiness amid you know, a life in which she pumps down bloody, murder, bloody murderers and grizzly murderers. Um, you need to know that in Lisa Fuller's book, Ghost Bird, that Oh damn! I can't give the spoiler right. Damn it! Um, <laughs> spoiler no. spoiler
0: free space. You need to know that you should get out and read Ghost Bird.
1: It is a fantastic
0: book. And then and then um, then tweet us um, <laughs> at final yes. drop to SCR. <laughs> um, um you, I'm trying to
1: find a way around it, and it's not working. You you know you need to know that. Character, the character, the central character in Ghost Bird, whose name I can, cannot remember for the life of me, which is shocking, that she is has the strength and uh, to be able to do what is necessary. Mm. I think circumvented that potential spoiler. Um, sometimes that's what you need. And even though sometimes it may not necessarily be a perfect reflection of life, sometimes you just, you know, that is what keeps us going. And that gives us the strength to and the optimism to fight for that. And in some ways, that comes back to that affirming thing. You know, you say you can overcome the monsters, you can find the bad guy and bring him to justice, and you know, fight for your your space of happiness. And that is by telling ourselves that that is true and that can be true. We go and manifest it and make it true. Kind of like the secret but not. The second way that I heard that question was a question about power structures and the questions about the stories that are prioritised and given uh, voice and what they exclude. And it's a question that I often would rather step aside and allow someone who has been excluded to have a voice and ask them and ask them about their experience and what they think. Uh, Obviously, it is just you and I here, Andrew, so it's difficult for me to do that. But what I will say is that there is an increasing amount of discussion and scholarship and awareness of the fact that uh, the claims like, oh, but queer characters in books just don't sell very well or books by authors of colour just don't sell very well, are stories that are told that are manifested... And that are made true and realised by the actions of the people who say things like that. So there is a direct correlation between the success of a book and the marketing effort that goes into it. There is a direct correlate, well, I mean, there's a direct correlation between books that are read and the amount of those books that are published. But I think the marketing effort is a really interesting one because it's a self fulfilling prophecy. No, a book by a person of colour with a queer get- protagonist in it isn't going to do well if no one knows that it exists. So um, yeah, that's a really inelegant end, my apologies.
0: That's okay because I, I think you've exposed some of the ideas that are really essential here and we've so far we've talked about storytelling and its power to help us realize ourselves that power of telling a story about yourself to realise more of who you are. And we've talked a little bit about the power of storytelling to affirm, the seeking stories that help us uh, perhaps confirm or affirm or even get some space in the world. And now I want to think about something you touched on there about the way perhaps there are... There are stories that need to be told and the systems that allow or disallow those stories. Um, So, I mean, a large part of the colonial projects of the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, the thing that resulted in the settler colonial culture that we live here in Australia, a large part of that project was the destruction of culture. Literally, language and stories were being destroyed in an effort to inculcate Indigenous peoples into the dominant cultural narrative. And I'm going to say that differently differently they, they tried to kill off one story and replace it with another story. Mm. So, we now live in a settler colonial society that thrives on the back of overly or overtly white dominant culture stories, and yet people still freak out when there's any non-white character or um, non-dominant culture character taking centre stage. I wondered if you thought there's perhaps then a, a responsibility that stories carry and And in that way, also the storytellers, and I'm extending that beyond the people who pick up pen and put it to paper, but the people who are behind the marketing machines that you just discussed and the publishing houses, and maybe, maybe also the readers and their diet of stories. This is
1: always a tricky question.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but it's it's a question I think we we, I grapple with so much. I wanted help.
1: (laughs) No, no, it is, and it's an important question to ask. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what Catherine, who is the founder of Debut Books, uh, is wanting to be part of. You know, asking the question and making start. You know, putting the question out there. And again, I I am coming at this from my perspective of someone who has lived a relatively privileged existence. I'm white. So I always say I would actually rather turn this question to um, someone who is actually a member of the community that we're discussing and ask them rather than provide my own answer or my own solution mm. um, because my perspective is, obviously going to be very different with it. Can I come that
0: at it, can I come at yeah, it from a slightly to- different direction then? Because in, in Mirror Mirror, you reflect on this through your examination of the Disney Corporation and the role that they have played mm. in storytelling and writ large now, I think the figure you, you quote is Disney's... Um, Disney's profit share in, in its storytelling enterprises is something like 38% of, I can't remember if it's film or TV or or just media in America. So when we have a corporation that is reflecting a certain value set, which let's I think we can safely call it that kind of dominant culture, also settler colonial in a similar but different experience to where we live in Australia. When you've got those storytellers at a corporate level, storytelling is settled in the hands of a privileged few and it seems like that's yeah. seldom a good thing.
1: Um, yeah, and it's also, if you want to take like a really cold marketing perspective, it's also a kind of stupid approach because you're locking out a large portion of the market mm-hmm. if you actually don't tell the stories of people who aren't just white colonialists or white people who come from a colonial mm-hmm. you know, background. Um, like, it's just, that's what actually baffles me about a lot of a lot of the, the privilege and the preference of a very limited set of narratives. Like, okay, yeah, absolutely. We can and we should have that discussion from a, well, I don't want to say a moralist perspective, but from that, you know, the question about moral imperatives and actually, you know, respecting the dignity and the stories and the difference of other people. We can have that discussion, but there is also just one that, drives a lot of corporate uh behavior which is the bottom line Mm -hmm. and you're locking out and you're alienating a whole segment of the market who thanks to the internet have the capacity to congregate and discuss and say well actually yeah no this isn't my experience i do feel as though i've been left out and i'm not alone in feeling that way um so there's that um I
0: actually forgot what your original question was. That was I'm terrible at like that. On I, my think was, I, I think there was less of a question and more of just a reflection on what happens when there is uh, a dominance of storytelling from a central power. But as you mentioned there, the the internet has done this really interesting thing. We talk, people talk, and have talked for decades now about the democratization of knowledge through the internet, but. Also, that power of publishing, and you know, we're, we're sitting in a climate where we're f- worrying about Facebook having this natural monopoly, but that doesn't mean that other stories aren't out there. And what for, what I find most interesting is um, when there is a dominant publisher, like say a forty percent type of market share from Disney, that people can by default sort of fall back onto that for reasons you discuss in the book, like um, parents have their own. You know, experiences children with these narratives and are then mm. sharing it with their children, perpetuating. But that the other stories are out there, and the other stories may look more like the Grimm brothers' original collection. They're not sanitized. Mm. They may be a little bit violent. They don't reflect all of the predominant social mores, but they're important for that very reason. And it's that's what's so incredible about Mirror Mirror. Is it that it does challenge us to view? not just the end product of storytelling, not just ourselves as creators, but the, the whole process that goes on between and, and the way some of those ideas shape storytelling and maybe that we need to consider that as we go along.
1: Well, thank you for the compliment. It was nice to hear your work appreciated. But I think where I always pause is, you know, we watch stories and we read books And we watch movies as an act of leisure. And I'm always, you know, you don't want to add onto that leisure time and now critically engage with the work. Because while that's fun for me and about two other people in the world, for everyone else, it's really, you know, it's it's an act of intellectual labor. And this is also in an an environment and a culture. And this is um, millennials in particular have this, expectation that they should be working all the time and using their time as efficiently as possible. And now with COVID and work from home, the barriers between work and play really don't exist anymore. So you can always just hop onto your email and check it. Um, And so, you know, you don't want to be adding something else onto the process of just, you know, a a piece of film or or a book that you want to read to relax. By the same token, your piece of relaxation has the passive effect or might have the passive effect of reinforcing a you know, uh, white-centric society or locking out certain voices purely by virtue of how it's framed. And when I say how it's framed, I mean because of an absence of any characters of colour or any characters who are members of the LGBTQIA plus community. So it's, to me, it's a balancing act. And honestly, I don't think there's one right answer. I don't think there's one, well, probably a couple of wrong answers, frankly. For me, what's most important is that people just have it in the back of their mind or have a little bit of a discussion about it. Because even a micro discussion or a micro awareness can help Move towards something better because, for instance, you might be reading a book or watching a TV show and something just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel authentic. And I think authenticity is a really great driver of a good story and of market appetites. Is it authentic? Is it, do I feel like this is an accurate reflection? Because we, like I say, we watch these stories in part to see. And to understand, oh, maybe I haven't. The author writes it to see their own society and to kind of work through something. But the reader engages with it in part because they're looking. I mean, if you think about it, it's really weird. In our, in our free time, we read anecdotes about other people, fictitious or otherwise. It's a bit strange. But that speaks to the fact that we want to kind of see the world in some way reflected in the pages in a way that helps us understand it and digest it. If you feel that it's not actually an authentic reflection of that world, that's when you might turn to something else and something that is. And when you have, you know, and that's when, so even something like Holden Shepherds, Invisible Boys, I mean, that's been a huge success clearly because there were all these people and like, yes, the people who are members of that community who felt finally seen by a book that actually reflected their experience. But people who go, well, actually, yes, this actually feels authentic to me. This feels like an accurate representation and a true representation of young gay men. That's why that book did so well, because it, it was authentic in amongst literature which presented narratives of young queer men or young gay men, I should say, in ways that actually didn't feel quite right, didn't feel quite true.
0: Another hugely problematic and perhaps the most inauthentic part of any story, every story, is the problem of an ending because stories (laughs) impose a structure, but that doesn't necessarily mean everything stops.
1: Yeah.
0: So how do we deal with an ending? And I'm asking this because, you know, our conversation is coming to an end, but I don't know about you, Alice, but I don't, I don't feel that there is an ending here. I am, I am simply thinking of the way we, we need that idea of an ending in our life, even though everything continues.
1: If there is anything about Mirror Mirror that you might feel unsatisfactory or unsatisfied after reading, it's the fact that I don't, I can't give you a good answer. And the older I get, the more I realise that sometimes, unfortunately, it's not about an answer one way or another. The important thing is that you ask the question and have the discussion.
0: So I guess that means we might end this conversation, but that doesn't (laughs) mean the question of telling stories, listening to stories and engaging with stories is settled. I am speaking with Avi Endicott. Her book... From Daboo Books, a fantastic new independent publisher from Melbourne is called Mirror, Mirror Alice, thank you so much for taking the time. This is a topic that I don't think will ever be settled, but thanks for having a crack at it with me.
1: Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for your time as well.
0: That's it for this great conversation with A.B. Endicott. Alice's essay and mini-book, Mirror Mirror, is out now from Deboo Books. Deboo Books is a new Melbourne publisher. It is the brainchild of Catherine Larson, and the publisher is aiming to provide this platform for great storytelling and especially support emerging Australian voices. So, can I encourage you? Go out and support them. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. You can stay in touch with us. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. If you subscribe in your podcast app, you will hear from us every week. Great Conversations comes out weekly. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, I hope you got a good book. Happy reading.